Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. So my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor. If you're brand new with us, we are so glad that you're here. You're here, and we are on um, the tail end of a series. This is part three of What Would Jesus Undo? And here's the question that I want to start with. Do you know who I hate? Dislike. <laughs> Anybody who mistreats or hurts one of my kids. So you don't even have to be a parent to understand that dynamic if you're online. Like, you, you get, I think, the emotion, uh, even if you've not been in that place yet. But it's, it's crazy stuff at this point in our kids' lives because our kids are still young. So uh, it's a teacher. It's, you know, I hear about another little kid with my little kid. And so it's just all stupid stuff, but there's still something in you as a parent, something in me um, as a dad. And I talked about this before, but my oldest girl is almost eight. So she's telling me the other night about this boy in her class that she thinks is cute. And so immediately I just kind of moved to this place where when I show up for school the next day, I'm like, oh, where's this player at? And like, I'm scoping it out. And there's just that thing. But any, anybody that mistreats or hurts one of my kids, like, I just, I just have an issue with that. And the thing is, like, anytime one of my kids is mistreated in the smallest way, there's no, trying, there's no point trying to make peace with me if you've hurt one of them. So it doesn't matter, like, how many gift cards you give me. It doesn't matter if you give me money. It doesn't matter if you sing songs to me. Like, if you, if you hurt one of my kids, like, there's just something about that. In fact, the most honoring thing, and this is true of you if, if you've got children, the most honoring thing that you could do for me has nothing to do with me. And in fact, the most honoring thing that you could do for me is to do something for one of my kids. So that's just a side note. So here's what we're talking about in this series is the big bottom line is just this, and I kind of just need to get off my chest that like I get ticked off when people mess with my kids. But here's the bottom line of this series. The arrival of Jesus, as we've talked about, and I'll catch you up, signaled the undoing of what we're calling the temple model and the arrival of something that was entirely new. Now, here's the thing around that, and I'll explain what temple model means in just a second. If you're just joining us online or via radio, you just tuned in or you're in the house today. But the arrival of Jesus signaled something entirely new on planet Earth, and we cannot overestimate how shocking it was. And in fact, I'm making the case that 2,000 years later, we're still trying to catch up with it. But here's what we began to talk about last week, is that why, the reason it is so difficult to let go of some of the old ways and really embrace everything that Jesus introduced is because our consciences are hardwired in such a way that our consciences determine religious realities in our life, whether they are reality or not. 
Like that's just true of everybody, every religion. It's just a human nature thing. But our consciences are hardwired in such a way where they determine religious realities, whether they are realities or not. And when Jesus introduced something entirely new to planet earth, it was the undoing of everything that religion had ever known, the undoing of the Old Testament temple model, the undoing of every religious system. But ever since that point, really starting in about 300 AD, there's been this mix of the Jesus movement and then the mix of the old way that doesn't reflect reality, but it reflects our consciences. Because what Jesus introduced was so other and so different. It almost felt irresponsible. It almost felt wrong. It felt like a violation of the consciences of people in the first century to go, there's no way that we can let go of everything that we've known and just follow this new way of Jesus. In some ways, there has to be kind of an incorporation of the two things. And so here's what we said represents the temple model. And this is not just Old Testament temple. This is every ancient religion, just to give you a history lesson. Every ancient religion from Persia to Greece to Rome to the Jewish religion, and it's infiltrated its way into our churches in 2020, even in the West, but it was always made up of four pillars. Every religion consisted of sacred places. It always consisted of sacred text. It always had sacred men, and it was pretty much in this model, always men, and it always includes sincere followers. And as I've said, because religion gets weird, you could really insert superstitious followers because weird stuff happens in the name of religion. But every religion centers around sacred places. It's here's the place where I go where I feel God or I meet with God or this is the epicenter of the presence of God. This is where I get things right with God or I make sure God's good with me. But it always has a sacred place. There's always kind of a this is where I go. It always has sacred text or sacred oracles or sacred inscriptions and it always has sacred men. And the sacred men in this religious system or in temple model thinking, they always control the sacred text. So they tell you how to believe, what to do, how to interpret it, what it means. They literally have power that yields inclusivity and exclusivity in heaven and hell. But, but basically, they are the go-between between, between people and God to go, this is what it says and this is what you should do. And every ancient religion all the way up to today has always centered around those two things. And yet Jesus shows up on planet earth to go, you know what? I undid all of that. All of it's going away. All of it had an expiration date. This is going to be entirely new and entirely different than anything that you could ever imagine. The Jesus movement is going to be hard to embrace. It's going to be hard to let go of old ways. But Jesus is going, if you are going to follow me and you're going to be a part of my movement as I've defined it, you got to do it. And then around the fourth century, all of this old thinking that Jesus followers had let go of for a, long, for a long time began to infiltrate its way back into this movement. And all of a sudden, this thing that was so organic and so real and so centered around the teachings of Jesus and the fact that this is a new way, all of a sudden started to gravitate back. I almost did a whole message on this, but I decided not to, but I would love to unpack this for you. But it started to gravitate back to, okay, we've got our Jesus thing, and we've got the message of the good news that Jesus brought, but then we've also got our sacred places. We also have kind of our sacred men. We have our sacred texts, and we have this old way of thinking, the Old Testament thinking that's combined with the Jesus movement. Now you're like, okay, none of that is relevant to me, so let me begin to try to make this relevant to you, and let me help just kind of bring some things to the surface, because I'm telling you, in maybe not all of us, 
But I think for a lot of us, this informs how we view God, how we view Jesus, how we construct the church, and how we move forward. So l- let me like kind of unearth for you how our consciences are wired in such a way that they determine religious realities, even if they're not reality. Let me just give you this. If you've ever felt guiltier about missing church than mistreating somebody at work, that's temple model thinking. If you've ever felt guiltier about missing church and sitting in a row than demonizing somebody who has a different viewpoint than you, whether it's politically or otherwise, temple model thinking. Because at the back end of this, the idea is I can come, I did my thing, I sat in a row, I raised my hands, I'm good with God, and then you can go away and your conscience doesn't move you at all about the fact that you're good with God and you just sat in a worship service, but you've treated the person to your right or to your left as somebody who does not seem, in terms of your action, like somebody who who is made in the image of God and is worthy of your respect and your honor and your love, not because they believe what you believe or look like you or act like you, but because God said, that is my son and my daughter. Another question, if you believe that there's a ritual and we have, in every denomination of religion, we have a different one. And if you grew up Baptist, it was just like the First um, John 1, 9, and I do it, but then I confess it, and it's going to be good, and God will probably forget about it. And he probably forgot about David and Bathsheba, because I think that's how it works. So if you believe there's a ritual that makes you right with God without going and make it, making it right with somebody that you hurt, that's temple model thinking. That's a, I'm good with God, I've got this thing, I confessed it, I prayed a prayer, but I don't have to get it right with the people around me. Here's another question. If you ever use theology to unlove somebody around you, that's temple model thinking. Let me, let me give you one more. If other people's sins, however you define that, whatever it is for you, if others, other people's sins elicit superiority in you more than they elicit compassion, That is temple model thinking. And here's what I wanna help you see. The temple model as we're defining it is ultimately you-centered. And it is a subtle form of self-centered religion that is so hard to see in the mirror. And what I'm about to talk about in just a second is you're gonna think I'm making a distinction without a difference, but I'm not, so just go with me. This is so unbelievably important. This is the, whatever the denomination or wherever you're at, and it's all about Jesus, but inadvertently you've mixed a bunch of other stuff into the Jesus movement. This is the question that temple model thinking always centers around. What must I do or believe to make things and keep things right with God in me? What must I do? This is not about I'm trying to earn salvation or grace or any of those things, but it's this experientially, like what do I gotta do to make sure that I keep things right and make things right between God and me? And that question is okay initially, it's not eventually. So it always centers around, okay, like God help me, God help me. God, what what do I need to? What should I? What do I need to? What should I? God, what do I need to? What should I? What should I give up? What do I need to stop doing? Where do I need to go? Do I need to do more? But it's all about what should I do? What do I need to do? God help me. And it is a subtle form of, listen, what do I need to do to make things right and keep things right between God and me? Here's what you need to know about temple thinking. It always gravitates towards rules and rituals. Like that idea, that thinking, just hang with me for a second, always gravitates towards rules and rituals. And what you do is you come up with arbitrary standards. And I said this last week, they always change depending on area of the country, 
generation, denomination, culture, language. They always change. They're always arbitrary. And then you come up with these arbitrary kind of rules and regulations. You always create escape clauses because you can never fully live up to them or fulfill them. And then you ultimately just become a hypocrite. And it's all about, like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? How do I need to make sure that I'm okay, that God's okay, that we're okay? And it leads to the question of what exactly, what's the line, what's the verse, what's, what, what exactly must I do to make things right and keep things right between God and me? It's always centered around you. And I said this last week, but this is the message of the good news. If you're constantly in this kind of thing where it's how does God view me, the reality is if you place your faith in Christ and what he did, which was die on the cross for your sins, past, present, and future, and then I believe historically walked out of a grave alive, the scripture says, when you transfer your trust to go, I am not good enough, I cannot earn my way, I can never meet any kind of standard of perfection or even close to perfection, and I need what Jesus has done for me and what Jesus did for me was live the perfect life that I could not live. So I'm not trusting me any longer. I'm trusting what he did through his death, his resurrection. And the scripture says, the moment you place your faith in Christ, you get all of the benefits of Christ's life. And it is scandalous and it is undeserved and it is unfair, but it is not cheap because Jesus paid a high price. But the moment you make that transfer of trust, the scripture says, God is good with you. And no matter what you do, and do you have the opportunity to go off the rails? Absolutely but it was based on a covenant that God made with you to go, I'm gonna go 100% of the way. I'm not even asking you to go 1% of the way because in that moment, it is not grace, it's just a discount. So when you trust me, you are good and you will stand before Jesus holy and righteous and good because of what Jesus did for you so you never have to play the game any longer. God, how do you view me? And God, are we good? God has already declared over your life if you place your faith and trust in him, you are good because of what Jesus did for you. Now, if that seems a little bit like you're just kind of throwing everything out and you can abuse that, then go back and listen to last week. That is the message of the gospel. And if it seems a little bit, that is so radical, then you're just beginning to get it. But Jesus, as he showed up to go, listen, this temple thinking that is you-centered, it is a subtle form of self-centered religion that I am inviting you to abandon completely. I heard this in seminary, I've never forgot it, but this is the epicenter of the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement centers on the you beside you. And when Jesus showed up as hard as it is to understand, that was not the context for any religion, including the Jewish religion. And Jesus shows up to go, I am shifting the paradigm from this purely vertical to the horizontal. And now the test of your relationship with me is your relationship with other people. And now the Jesus movement and model is going to be all about the you beside you, whoever that you is. The Republican you beside you, the Democrat you beside you, the gay you beside you, that they have anger issues you beside you, that they have a personality that I don't quite get and don't connect with you beside you, the pot smoker you beside you, the Catholic you beside you, the Baptist you beside you, the I don't understand what they're doing with their life you beside you, the they're annoying you beside you. Like the moment Jesus shows up, he's going, I'm going to shift the entire thing. And this movement is no longer just about how are you doing with God because God has already answered that question. It is all about the you that is around you, in front of you, and behind you. And I'm telling you, when 
when you begin to understand that and it becomes the filter for all of the New Testament, I'm telling you, your view of everything begins to change. When you go to John 15, 12, and you recognize that what Jesus introduced was, I want you to love the way that I have loved you. And John wrote it down when Jesus said, my command is this, love each other. How? The way that I've loved you. In Galatians, when Paul Wright wrote, as we looked at last week, the only thing that counts, this is so shocking, this is so radical, we, this verse doesn't get nearly enough airplay, the only thing that counts, but Paul, there's a lot of stuff that counts, there's a lot of things that we should worry, I get that. Yeah, but the Bible says, Paul's like, shut up, I'm writing the Bible, this is a new way. The only thing that counts is your faith expressing itself through what? Through love, and then in Galatians, when he wrote this, the entire law, to quote Jesus, is summed up in a single command love your neighbor. I'm telling you, this was shocking to first century followers as yourself. I'm telling you, when Jesus began to introduce this, this was a complete departure from temple model thinking, it was totally new. Now, if you're like, I kind of get that. Let me just dig down for just a little bit. Do you know why you shouldn't do certain things where you just like, at certain times your conscience is pricked and you're like, I, I, I shouldn't do that. And, and generally you want to reach for a verse, but do you know why ultimately you should tell the truth? And, and I know the answer that you'll give and most of you will give the wrong answer. Like, well, I should tell the truth because I, I, I know that it's one of the Ten Commandments, and I don't remember which one because I only know about four of them, but maybe five. But I think it's in there, and the Bible says don't lie, and God hates lying and hates liars, and we shouldn't lie. In fact, I think there's multiple verses in the Bible about do not lie. Wrong answer. Like, that's, that's good, and it's a part of the answer, but that's under the Jesus movement and Jesus model. The reason that we lie is not because you can find a verse that says don't lie. When this becomes the filter for everything, here's what Jesus is saying. You don't lie because when you lie, you hurt the person that you lie to. When you lie to somebody else, you cover yourself at the expense of them. The, the reason that you don't lie to somebody else is because when you lie inadvertently or advertently, you communicate to them that you are not worthy of the truth. And what's best for you is secondary to what is best for me. And you're like, whoa, no, 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 I need to not lie because the scripture says don't lie and I wanna make sure that, that God's good with me and God loves me and Jesus is going, no, that is not the way any longer. In fact, you don't even need a verse. This is the filter for everything. It's not about the letter of the law. It's not about a command. It's about this one ethic, one command, this one marching order of I want you to love the way that I have loved you. And so the reason is not, I wanna not lie because I wanna make sure God loves me. No, in the new Jesus movement, you don't lie because you love your neighbor. Did you know why you should be generous? We're like, well, because it says in the scripture that God loves a cheerful giver. That's in there somewhere. And it's more blessed to give than receive. And I think we need to be generous. And I think it says something about we should give some of our stuff away. And so like we, we need to be generous because the Bible says that we need to be generous. Wrong answer. Do you know why we should be generous? And this is, I get accused of not being deep sometimes, so get ready to take notes. This is so deep, man. I'm gonna give you something right here. So if you've been waiting for deep, here you go. Here's the reason that, that we should be generous. Because when you are generous, it helps the people that you are generous to. 
So I told you, write that down. When you are generous, it helps the people you are generous to. And when you are not, literally, you rob from somebody else. And you rob from what God wants to do in your sphere of influence, in your church, in your individual neighborhood and community with what God has laid on your heart. It's not about, well, I need to give because God says gives. No, no, no. You don't even need to find a verse. The marching order, the one command that replaced all the commands is, I want you to love the way that I have loved you. That means you need to be generous to the you beside you. Do you know why you shouldn't, let's negative side, do you know why you shouldn't talk badly about somebody? Well, because that's easy. I think the scripture talks a lot about God hates gossip. And the Bible says that, I can't quote any of the verses in the Bible, but like I just know it's in there. I learned it in Sunday school. That's an easy answer. Like we just don't talk badly about people. We don't gossip. God hates gossip. God hates when we offend other people. So that's why we need to not talk badly about somebody else. No. Because when you talk badly about somebody else, it hurts somebody else. And it undermines their integrity. Any time that you gossip or you talk badly about somebody else, I know this world really, really well, you talk badly about somebody else, you elevate you at the expense of them. And by the way, this will just help you frame it. If, if this is, it is always the weapon of the insecure and the wounded. But the reason that we don't gossip, well, God says don't gossip. No, that's not the reason that you don't gossip. That's not the reason that you don't, don't talk badly. You shouldn't do that even if you could not find a verse in the B-I-B-L-E because you cannot gossip and love your neighbor. You cannot be, be greedy and stingy and love your neighbor. You cannot be at a place where you talk badly about somebody and love your neighbor. And Jesus is going, this is the filter for all of your Christian life. This is what it looks like. And there is a massive difference between I need to do it because I can find a verse for it opposed to I need to do it because I have one ethic and one command. I want to love you in every situation the way that Jesus has loved me. I don't even need a text. I don't even need a verse. I don't even need to find a chapter. I already have have my marching orders, and the motivator is not God said not to do it. The motivator is God said that you are made in his image, so I'm going to love you the way he has loved me. That is a complete departure from temple model thinking. So I could go a lot of directions. Let me give you one more. Do you know, do you know why you shouldn't pressure your, your girlfriend sexually? Well, like, well, the Bible, I think, says a ton about sex, um, I don't know a lot of what it says, but I know there's verses in there, and I, I know sometimes I'm not sure if we should even do it, or it's a necessary evil in marriage, which is a lot of people's view in the scripture, but I just know like there's verses that we shouldn't do that, and God said don't do that, and it's a big deal, and no, that's not why. It, when you pressure somebody in any arena to do what they don't want to do, you create regret for that person. Amen. And you don't even need to find any verses, because if you love your neighbor, you are not going to be the epicenter of their greatest regret down the road. In fact, I've said this before, but this is just true. This is just kind of a, a thing to keep out in front of you as you move forward in life, but you should never show up as the story in somebody's future counseling session as a follower of Jesus. You should never be the story of somebody's greatest regret. And so imposing my will in any area on somebody else is loving me at the expense of my neighbor. And Jesus is like, you don't even need a verse. I know you're like, well, what about, what about, what about, what about, what about? And Jesus is going, do you need a verse for everything? 
I've given you this one thing. I want you to love the way that I have loved you. And this translates into everything, your sexuality, your finances, what you do with your time, where you travel to, every part of your life is informed by this single ethic and this single command. And by the way, it's enough. It will lead you into places where you will, where you will discover the heart of God in that situation, in that gray area. Whether you ever find a verse or not, I want you to love the way that I have loved you. Jesus is like, go. That is the Jesus movement. In fact, I would say it this way. The New Testament imperatives are examples of how to demonstrate your love for God by loving other people. That's how you interpret the New Testament. It is not an exhaustive list of rules and commands. In fact, that was never its purpose. They were generally specific letters to churches dealing with specific issues, and they were examples that were left to go, hey, here's how you apply some of this stuff. There's a million other things that you are gonna face in your life, and in some cases, a hundred things a day, and you're not gonna have a verse, and there's not gonna be any chapter, and there's gonna be some gray areas, but don't worry, I've given you the one thing that leads the way in everything else, and the imperative. Narratives and example in the New Testament are simply examples about how you do the thing that matters most, loving your neighbor. In fact, this is how far Jesus took this. The entire Old Testament, all, I wish I could unpack this further, but I don't have time. All of the laws and all of the prophets, everything that was predicted, everything that was said, every law that was instituted, 630 some of them, all the ceremonial institutions, all of the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament hung on these two commands. All of it has been replaced and now informed by love God, love your neighbor. Jesus' words, not mine. And everything else is commentary on and application of those two commands. In fact, everything in the scripture. And the examples were not given primarily for your benefit. And they weren't given for God's benefit. God is fine. They were given for the benefit of the you that is beside you. Now, I get where like some of you are at. I totally get the pushback. If, just lean in for just a second. If you're at this place to go, okay, but I get that, but I just feel like you're watering it down. I just feel like it's kind of cheap grace a little bit, term here all the time. I, it kind of feels a little bit like Woodstock for Christians. Like it's just this thing where it's like, where's the standards at? You're gonna just throw everything out. There's, there's nothing definitive. It just, it, you're not taking the text seriously. I, I understand, I get all that. I understand all that. The Jesus movement is less complicated. It is. The Jesus movement is far less complicated than what most of you grew up with in this mixture of the Jesus movement and temple model thinking. It is far less complicated, but listen to me. The Jesus movement is far more demanding. <laughs> this is not cheap grace and wandering down the standards. This is actually Jesus raising them up to go, listen, I I'm creating a movement where there are gonna be no places to hide, <laughs> no loopholes, no workarounds. I want you in every situation not to find some kind of workaround or some kind of, does the text say, but what does love demand of you and what does it look like to put you above me? Jesus is like, that is the way forward. And the moment you think that somehow this is watering it down, you just need to remember, you serve a God that was sent from heaven who ultimately gave his life covered in blood and other men's saliva. And he says, 
that's how far you take this. That's how extreme this is. This is how far you go. And when you begin to embrace this, there's no more, I can just show up and I can check a box and God, are we good? And enough quiet time, did I give enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I whatever enough? I've sat here enough. Like there's no more rules and rituals where you can come and hide in the temple model. You can create a checklist and then you can go, well, I'm not sure it says that and I'm not sure this is what's in the text and I'm not sure about this or I think in this situation and justify whatever you wanna do justify and treat people however you want to treat people and then think because you have done your religious practice, you're okay with God. When Jesus shows up, he goes, listen, I'm eliminating all of that. No workarounds, no loopholes, because it's really hard to find a workaround or a loophole in Ephesians or Philippians 2.5. In your relationships, your attitude or your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What was your question? There's, it's hard to find a loophole in what Luke writes, but I tell you who hear me, this is Jesus talking, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. What were you, what are you asking again? It's hard to find a loophole or a workaround or does it say that or how far do I need to go or how close to sin can I get in Luke 6, 36 where it says, be merciful. Okay, but how merciful? Just as your father in heaven is merciful to you. What were you asking I'm just telling you, I don't know if I can explain it accurately, but this is why the Jesus movement is so spectacular. Because unlike what many of us have experienced, there are no workarounds. There are no loopholes. There is no place to hide. And in almost every case, you intuitively know the answer to the question, what does love demand of me? In almost every circumstance, In almost every relationship, in almost every decision, whether you want to confront it or not is another issue. You almost always know the answer to the question. In this, I'm trying to find verses in the commentary that will agree with me. But what does love demand of me? And you know this. I talk about it all the time. In the first century, Jesus brought this command to a group of people who were dealing with the genocide, basically, of, of little babies. And women were slaves and property, and there was unbelievable racism between Jew and Gentile. And what's interesting is Jesus didn't worry so much about the systems. He introduced this one thing that was seemingly naive, but throughout history, you can study this, the Jesus movement was always bottom up, not top down. And so he gave this to his disciples to go, listen, I just want you to take this thing forward. You're not going to have any leverage. You're not going to have a political movement. No, I'm not going to overthrow Rome. Nobody's going to listen to you for a while. There's not going to be any platform, but you're going to have this one ethic and this one command. And Jesus is like, I'm just telling you, it'll work. And these groups of followers that had scraps of writing and no New Testament, they just had been with Jesus or been with people who had been with Jesus, and they had this singular ethic and singular command that they began to take for when Jesus said in the upper room, if you forget everything else, I don't want you to forget this. I want you to love other people the way that I have loved you. And guys, it'll change the world. And come on, just... Just imagine for a second again when like your pushback is, but I just feel like this is watered down and you're losing all the standards and it's just, this gets really, I don't know where this is gonna lead. Again, let me just encourage you just for a second. When your heavenly father asked this question of what does love demand, it cost him his son. And when your savior asked this question, it cost him his life. 
It is less complicated. It is far more demanding. But can you imagine what would happen in our families, in our churches, in our culture right now? If we embrace that one idea and people maybe got to the edges of our neighborhoods and our homes and our church communities in the midst of all of the chaos and they were critical of what we believe because sometimes what we believe seems a little bit crazy. They're critical of what we believe but they are envious of how we treat one another. Can you imagine a culture like this? And some of you are like, okay, I get it, but you're still messing with my categories. And I, I like, I just, it feels really watered down. It still feels kind of cheap to me. And you're just, you're removing all of the, I, 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 just, I just struggle with it and I get all that. So I just want to end with these verses. And I'll just straight up tell you. I hope for some of us in a good way, and I mean this with as much grace as I can muster, I hope these verses bother you. Here's what Jesus wrote, because you're like, okay, but what about the glory of God? I'm, yeah, I'm all about the glory of God. We should be all about the glory of God. I haven't heard you talk anything about the glory of God. Okay, so let, let me let Jesus talk, and let me let Jesus describe. We need Everything needs to bring glory to God, which is point to God, point to Jesus. I totally agree with you, but our definition of what it looks like sometimes is very different than what Jesus' definition is. Because you cannot bring glory to God by checking off some boxes and then treating people less than somebody who is made in the image of God. That does not bring glory to anybody. And so Jesus one time was with his guys because he knew we would struggle with this. We knew two th- he knew 2,000 years later we would still be trying to grab the old way and move it into the Jesus way because we're still trying to catch up with this and it's not intuitive. So he sits down and he goes, listen, let me just tell you practically what this looks like if you're still confused. And if you would accuse Jesus of watering it down. He said this, and The context of of when he's talking about this will happen is debatable, but what Jesus is talking about is not debatable by any scholar. Matthew 25, Jesus says this, when the son of man comes in his glory, there's there's our word, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. He's like, no, no, I'm I'm concerned about my glory. In fact, one of my chief aims is to, to bring me glory, which is narcissistic unless you're God. All glory goes to me and all the angels with him and He will sit on his throne in heavenly, here it is again, glory, that one day God wants his glory and everything is gonna point back to him. Verse 32, all the nations are gonna be gathered before him, talking about Jesus. And he will separate the people from one to another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, which means nothing to them, or us, but meant everything to them. And then verse 32, and he's gonna put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, Jesus talking about himself, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed, literally the Greek translation, happy in my father, take your inheritance. By the way, if you just did a study of that throughout specifically the New Testament, it's mind blowing, everything that is in that word inheritance. Take your inheritance, literally the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And everybody's listening to Jesus, by the way, is confused every time Jesus talks. And so they're asking questions in their head and maybe to each other, okay, how, how do we do that? Why, why do we have this inheritance? How do we procure this? And Jesus says this, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, guys. And his disciples are so confused. They're like, do you remember feeding Jesus? was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and again they're always moving literal so like I don't 
who gave Jesus a drink? I was a stranger and you invited me in. And like, why invited you into my heart? I don't remember inviting you any other time. Jesus, you invited yourself over to a lot of people's houses. We didn't ever invite you. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick. I'm like, Jesus can't get sick and stay with him. And you look after me. And I was in prison and you came to visit me. And they're like, we are so confused. Jesus can't break the law. Like, what are you talking about? But there were some of them in the crowd in that moment that recognized, okay, Jesus, I, I think what you're trying to say is, I've spent my whole Christian journey trying to get you to look after me. And somehow for some of us, the whole time we've actually been doing something to look after you. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you? This is such a huge question. In fact, just say those last two words. Lord, when did we, online, help me out too. When did we what? Like, okay, the question is, okay, when did we see Jesus? Like, when did we put it in our vernacular? And when did we feel Jesus? When did we experience Jesus? When, did, when, when was that moment? Because Jesus, people love to talk about that. Like, when was that moment where we saw, where we had clarity, where we felt him, where we felt closest to him? Like, when, when was that moment? Lord said, you saw me hungry and you fed me and thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothing? You were so confused. And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And if you were to answer the question, okay, well, the closest thing that I've gotten to really experience in feeling Jesus was when I went on that Holy Land tour and I walked where Jesus walked and I saw those places and I just felt like he was so close, that sacred place and that area where, where God's been and I've never felt closer to Jesus. Or was that camp experience and everybody was crying at the last night and we were throwing sticks and fires and it was unbelievably meaningful and there was like 13 things that I was gonna give up and I'm telling you, like it changed something in me. It's like a defining moment and I've never felt Jesus like that. I've never felt close or there's that song. And when I heard that song with what I was going through in that moment, how everything intersected, I'm telling you, it's almost like God was there, like Jesus was there. I've never felt anything like that in my life. Or that time we were doing that Bible study together, I don't know, Beth Moore or somebody else, and it was amazing and I learned so much. And I've never been closer to God in that moment. That's where I felt Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus would say, all those things are great. But who benefited from every single one of those things. You did. And the Jesus movement in its essence, if you're gonna follow me, Jesus would say, it's not about you. All great things, but it's about me. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, that whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, stop cultural context. We immediately gravitate toward those who are marginalized or lower income. That is not culturally what he's talking about. This has to be culturally interpreted. In our culture, among Jesus followers who look at people who are on the other side, this is really translated as if you are going to do for the least of these in our culture, regardless of what somebody makes, regardless of their social standings, regardless of where they live, doing for somebody else what Jesus has done for you, primarily those who would be characterized 
as those who are the least of these in our culture is those that are most unlike us and do not believe like us. And you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And Jesus is like in this moment, the Jesus movement is centered around the you beside you and your devotion to God is authenticated, it is demonstrated and it is illustrated by one thing, how you love other people. Actually, I did have a point in the beginning. Did I mention that when you mistreat one of my kids, that all the gift cards and the money and the sucking up for it won't do anything? Did I, did I mention, and, and so many of you understand this dynamic because you're the same way, did I mention that the best way to honor me has nothing to do with me? That the most honoring thing that you can do for me is to do something good for one of my children. It's almost like, it's almost like whatever you do for one of them, it's like you're doing it for me. It's almost like I've heard this before. Our Father, I'm just telling you, what if it is that simple? The question in every circumstance, every situation, every relationship, every gray area, what does love demand of me? And I'm going to honor God by loving you. And the harder you are to love, the more honoring it is to my Father in heaven. And I'm just telling you, if we got this right, if you got this right, it will change your family. If you got this right, it will do something for your marriage that counseling will never be able to do as big on counseling as I am. It has the power to raise from the dead any dysfunctional thing and breathe life into anything that you thought was gone a long time ago. It has the power to change communities, change the city, no hyperbole. It has the power to change the world. And the reason I know that is because once upon a time it did. What does love demand of me? Don't miss next week. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much for what you've left us. And I thank you that, Lord, what you said you meant 100%, that it is for freedom that I've come to set you free. And Lord, my hope is that this series would bother a bunch of people in a good way that would lead us to reevaluate where we are continuing to hold on to some things that have made the church unnecessarily resistible and have put so many barriers in, in place that honestly, a long time ago, you already undid. And not only is it not helping us, it's drawing us away from the relationship that you intended that is at the epicenter, a message of grace, that is informed by your example and what you've done for us and your scandalous and radical love that now is our marching orders, our ethic, this verb, the singular command to love other people the way that you've loved us. And so I pray that for some of us where there is subtle temple thinking, where we are all vertical and it's all about God, how am I doing? God, how do you view me? God, is everything okay? And we are in this this mindset where literally 
We can show up to church today and feel good about ourselves and then walk out of here and berate and mistreat other people. And it never does anything to our conscience because we are hanging on to so much of the vertical temple model thinking that the one thing that mattered most and the one thing that actually counts is the one thing that is not the dominating force of our lives and our relationship with Jesus. So I just pray that you would change that. I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would move in us and do your thing. And we ask this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.